What would help me uh, a little bit would be to know um, if any of you are here for the first time, first time here at CIMC. Okay. And how many uh, people were at the last talk on this theme? How many people have been to at least one of the talks of the three so far? Any one of the three? Doesn't help at all. Okay, uh, <clears throat> this evening is the fourth in a series of talks, and I don't know how long they're going to go for. It depends on uh, when all the blah, blah, blah wears itself out. Um, and what I will be doing, have been doing, and will continue to do is will be somewhat of a review, very brief, of what has come before, to the best of my memory, and then we'll move ahead so that uh, if you are new, if you haven't been to any of the talks, I hope that there's at least a little bit of a background and a prelude to enable you to connect with what uh, is talked about this evening. But obviously it's going to be limited if you haven't been here. Uh, the title is <coughs> really finally not so much about death. It's shining the light of death on life which if has puzzled some people, what does that mean? Uh, when you shine the light of death on life. Um, the meaning that I'm giving it is a simple one. That as you, if you, take into account the fact that each one of us must age, must grow sick, must die, without exception, uh, that, as a reflection and as something that you that is possible to learn about, can enhance life. So it's mainly about now. I would say it's entirely about now. But in order to really help us be now, uh, we have to resurrect certain very obvious things that uh, apply to the whole human race, without exception, everyone here and which are not dealt with too much. We left off last time, uh, and I think the uh, teaching story that I left off with would, would be what I'd like to do because it uh, briefly will give you a certain attitude which I hope will prevent misunderstanding what's being said. Uh, sometimes, and this can be especially true in Theravadan Buddhism, although it's by no means true of the whole school, but there are pockets of it that uh, seem to be, you don't really have to even read between the lines, saying sort of, uh, look around you, you know, we're all going to get sick, old, we're going to get to die, and wars, and pestilence, and just wherever you look, let's just get out of here, let's get the hell out of here, this is no place to be, planet Earth. And a certain kind of uh, 
the only reason life exists is to sort of uh, leave it in some altered state. Uh, I don't think so. I think that, at any rate, that's not the perspective here. It's one of, uh, finally, there's no separation between life and death. That is, uh, the practice of living or learning the art of living is also the learning the art of dying. They're inseparable. And I hope that becomes clearer as we go on. Uh, the anecdote was about one of my teachers named Vimala Thakkar, an Indian woman who actually uh, came to the center in the first year of the center. And she talked about one of her teachers, who was a, a very old and sick Indian saint. Uh, and he was dying and she was present. He was very close to death. It was any time now. And in his tradition, uh, you would wake up early in the morning, you would bathe, you would put a uh, sandalwood paste in the third eye and a few other things, and then you would meditate, maybe do some chanting. And here he was, all wasted away, and many other, uh, I don't want to go into the whole quote that I read last time. And uh, it was a matter of some thought moments, or the most uh, hours or a day or so. And, but he insisted that every morning uh, people wash him and get him ready for meditation, which he did. They would have to prop him up. And this one morning that Vimla was there, they brought him the paste to put on, the, on his forehead. It was his particular Hindu uh, sect. But they didn't bring him a mirror. And so he scolded the person who was taking care of him saying, just because I'm going to die any moment now, do you think that I'm going to neglect life by just perhaps putting the dot on crooked? Uh, and he said, uh, I can't do it justice, the way the original quote. But if, in effect, every moment of life is precious, including those last ones. And every moment of life is meant to be lived with awareness, consciously. So uh, it's all there. In other words, a full acknowledgement of death he wasn't, it's not as if he was uh, deluded or anything. He knew exactly what was happening. And uh, unfaltering commitment to living fully right to the end. And those of you who practice uh, Vipassana or related kinds of, uh, any practice that puts a high premium on the direct experience of experience, uh, you can see that the same practice that is used in, your, in our ordinary life right now is also the same one you'll be using when the time comes to die, and that time will come for all of us. Now, uh, one, I don't know if it's a precaution, but it's something that will make me feel a little bit more comfortable. Uh, what I'm going to be saying through all these talks and have been saying is really directed to practitioners. Now, maybe you came in because a friend said come, and this, the subject matter, aging, sickness, death, and so forth, that's of interest to everyone. And even if you don't have a meditation practice, perhaps there'll be something useful that's said. But uh, I'm directing it to people who have a practice. Uh, everyone's welcome. Uh, because quite frankly, I don't think you'll be able to do what I'm talking about unless you have a practice. Or the way you'll do it will be uh, minimal and won't be really so beneficial. And there might be other approaches that would actually be, be more helpful. At any rate, everyone's welcome, but in the back of my mind all the time is someone who is doing uh, a, a, some awareness practice. 
uh, and I more or less assume that. Uh, the basis for this kind of teaching, which um, we have practice groups here that do it, uh, the basis for that for this teaching is the basic practice of insight meditation. And there are somewhat different versions of it, uh, but the ones that are taught here and at IMS all, I think it's safe to say, include some training that helps calm and steady the mind whether it's the breath or metta or some of the many themes actually that can be used to help train the mind. That's to begin with, all human beings have a wild, our mind's wild. No doubt in some realm it isn't. Something that you love to do, some area of expertise, you're probably very, very concentrated, very alert, very clear. But I haven't met anyone yet who starts that way when it comes to directing that clarity and steadiness to your own experience. And I've seen some people who have extraordinary, like a brain surgeon who came here once, who obviously had exquisite capacity to pay attention, but it was to other people's brains and how to work on those brains. And this practice uh, was something that was very, very difficult and eventually, I don't know where it is now, but he backed off because what you're looking at is yourself. And so there's some training necessary because to begin with, um, it's a camera that's shaking, and so that uh, the, the, the focus that you have will be no focus. It will be blurred. It will be very hard to look clearly at anything, let alone aging, sickness, and death. So there's some training, and in our center we use the breath and metta a lot. I use, in particular, the breath a lot. And then, however you do it, however you manage to help the mind s uh, settle down, uh, then in Vipassana practice, uh, the next phase, to simplify things dramatically, but to give you a basis for what will be said this evening, you use that uh, quality of a, of a more settled and calm mind uh, to become more familiar with the life of the body, with the life of feelings, and with the mind itself. It has come to know the different conditions of the body, not as a concept, but the actual sensations that make up a human body, as the life force keeps unfolding over and over again, to come to know uh, every experience that happens to the body. And if you've come here, you know that you at least will get to know it if you sit, because there'll be some discomfort and pain. And so we have to learn how to become more familiar with that and any other kind of physical condition. Then we also have to learn how to become more familiar with, more at home with, uh, what happens when the senses, all the senses, receive the world? And when we do, and this is going on all day long, sounds and smells and sights and so forth, uh, immediately as we receive it, it's experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You know, see if it's so. Right now, um, you're having some experience of this talk. Maybe it's the quality of my voice, or if you're uh, a visual freak, maybe it's what you see, whatever, but it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that's going on and on and on and on. And so uh, to become more and more familiar with that, comfortable with that, or to use a more technical term, equanimous, so that we're neither grasping nor pushing away, that we're able to, uh, in a calm and clear way, observe our life from the inside as well as the outside.
and then even more subtle are the mind states themselves all the different images and energies that uh, course through the mind and as we become more familiar with them and uh, we're able to do that because the mind is beginning to settle down we're also then encouraged and here's where real insight meditation begins we're encouraged to look deeply into these realms of the body and the mind essentially it's body-mind process and to see what the nature of that mind-body process is and first and foremost is to see that everything that arises passes away. To see change wherever you look. If you start with a breath, uh, you can see that every in-breath comes and goes, every out-breath comes and goes. Uh, however you look at it, the breath is calm and then it's rough and then it's deep and then it's shallow and it's pleasant to breathe and then it's unpleasant to breathe and so forth. If you look at bodily sensations, whatever, you can't help but see that it's alive. It's a process that's unfolding coming and going as well and the mind well very fast moods coming and going images flashing through the mind's thoughts chasing themselves through the mind and here the challenge of insight one of the main meanings of insight is insight into the changing nature of all formations now you can see that this is a basic uh, Dharma practice to begin to see the law of impermanence and this, I think, is one of the unique contributions of the Buddha. Everyone knows that life is impermanent. It's been written about in every civilization. But I think what's unique is what the Buddha did is to take that obvious insight and to encourage us to learn about it on our own body and our own mind. That's quite a different undertaking. It's very different to understand that ancient Egypt is not here, and ancient Greece is gone, but how about ancient Larry? <laughs> it's a little different. We don't want to look at that one so much. Uh, so insight meditation, uh, a, a fundamental door into the understanding of the way things are, is to begin to see impermanence in our own body and our own mind. Now, without saying more, you can see how just ordinary practice, we never mention aging, sickness, and death, you're already dealing with it and you're already preparing yourself to be more adequate to deal with aging sickness and death because those are just particular expressions of the, of the laws of nature that keep unfolding and one meaning of Dharma is nature the natural lawfulness of it all there's an intelligence at work this universe is not just random so uh, if you're interested in, in dealing with your aging sickness and death and if you're practicing vipassana you've already begun to work on it as you begin to see that you can't count on any mood or thought or conclusion about yourself you can you can try to but it'll be whisked away and it'll be contradicted and it'll keep changing if you look at the body you'll see especially as you keep practicing that the body is not a solid thing quite an amazing field of energy. In fact, it's all energy. And here's the other part. Uh, sometimes we chant at this center, Anicca Vata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upakitua Nirujanti Kesam Upasamo Sukho. Some of you have heard that chant. Everything that arises passes away. When this arising and passing away itself passes away, that is when the arising 
and passing away itself passes away, you're in the land of true happiness. Now, this is where, this is the high point of all spiritual practice, I would say, whether you call it God or self-realization or enlightenment or awakening or your true nature, Nibbana, Nirvana, whatever. So, uh, the study of impermanence, finally, is about finding out, is there any place, not uh, merely poetic or uh, mythical, but is there any place that we ordinary human beings, all of us, can actually come to experience that's in our own being, that is not subject to birth and death. The body must age. It must get sick. It must die. No one's exempt from this lawfulness. Is there any place to go that's free of this? Now, the concern for rebirth, we've been around before, we're going to be around again. Whether you believe in that or not uh, isn't such so much of an issue. But finally, that isn't the deepest teaching, because the deepest teaching is to come to liberation from, from this. And that liberation is attained right here. It's a practical, concrete thing that each one of us can gain a glimpse of. And some fortunate few can even live there more and more, can taste that in us which is untouched, which if you want to call it sacred, you can call it sacred. It's as good a word as any. I think it's better than most. It's untouched by culture. It's unaffected by the aging process. It's unaffected by whatever your ethnic group is or your race or your gender. And if that weren't true, it would all be quite uh, hopeless. Now, you, this is not something you're uh, to uh, sign up for as a belief. Uh, you can, but that's not what the Buddhist teaching is based on. It's not another belief system. There are many of them. What's being said is that if you practice, this is someplace that's already there. Or there means here. It's your here and my here. But your here is my there right now. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Okay, now, so I just want, I'm giving you some uh, context. So that with this as a framework, we can get on with uh, starting to move closer to our subject, and I hope I can uh, tonight begin to talk about aging. There are many ways to talk about uh, Dharma practice. Uh, one way that I particularly find um, fulfilling, deep, and accurate, and continues to inspire me, I've used it for many years now, is that what practice is about is about intimacy. It's the practice of intimacy with all things. Uh, when we use the word intimacy, we primarily, I think, use it to mean an intimate relationship with another. And that's one use of it. When it's used as a Dharma term, when we say intimate with all things, and the particular uh, teacher who gave it the clearest sense is a Japanese teacher named Dogen, all things literally means all things. So that means the challenge of practice, this life of awareness, all the skills we're learning, following the breath, walking meditation, metta, uh, all the things that if those of you who've been practicing have been encouraged to do, finally have to do with helping us become intimate. And finally, most important, is intimate with ourselves. An enlightenment experience is just 
the most intimate you can ever be with yourself, which is a stupid way of phrasing it because there's no you and there's no self when that's experienced, but I have to use language. That is when any separation whatsoever falls away and there's just absolute presence, undivided absolute presence, and you're never more alive. Everything is just what it is. And there's no Buddhism there, of course. There's no any otherism either. And everyone has that potential, everyone. At least this teaching says so. Again, it's for you to, to test it and find out. You won't find out by furrowing up your brow, thinking about it a lot, if that's all you do, and reading all the books in our library about it. Read some of them and listen to some of the tapes, but at some point you have to start taking a look. It's not really, it's about reading, but it's about reading yourself, your own book. It's the only way to get there that I know of, to taste it. Okay, so that uh, intimacy of practice um, applies to everything that we do. Let, let's give, let me give you a sense of what I mean when I use the term intimacy. Let's say you're in nature and you, there's a beautiful sunset. Who hasn't had that experience? Maybe Saddam Hussein has it, I don't know. I'm just kidding. He's like, you saw the news he's on, probably everyone's mind. Um, when, when you, if you're uh, in touch with that beautiful sunset, but there's no idea of sunset, there's no idea that I, I'm in the Caribbean watching this, aren't I a, a wonderful and fortunate to have a vacation being in the Caribbean watching this beautiful sunset, which is just like the brochure said it would be. And also me, this sense of me who's so fortunate watching it. Sometimes you, if you're just so totally engrossed, there's just, uh, I won't even call it sunset because that spoils it. It has nothing to do with words, nothing whatsoever. And yet uh, it touches our heart, we know that. Now this is something that you can practice. In fact, I encourage people to start with, uh, not with the self, but just take a look at a leaf or a flower or if you're on the tea, a child, or anything, really. And see if you can just uh, let it be just what it is. And notice, you'll notice that it's not easy to do. Or take a piece of your favorite music. There's a lot of Bach being played right now. And you listen to it. Uh, intimacy with the music would be when you throw away all of your accumulations about Bach that you have built up over a lifetime whether this is a better performance than the one in Wiesbaden or the one that in Berlin or the one uh, or who you were with and you were in the Carnegie Hall and that was what a great evening that was. Uh, it's, there's no Bach in it. It's just what it is. So the intimacy would be with pure sound, with pure sight. In order to do that, there has to be no separation between you and what we call sunset between you and what we call music. And I think all of us have had these experiences. Perhaps you do it while dancing. Suddenly there are a few moments when it's just pure dancing and it's such a joy. And then you realize how, uh, what a, how beautiful you and your partner are doing on the floor and some people are even watching and suddenly dead again. You become self-conscious. So the key to intimacy as it's being used here this evening is non-separation. Well, what separates us from our experience? 
it's pr primarily thinking. <clears throat> Somehow, wherever we are, <clears throat> either we're not there, we're lurching forward into some imagined future, or we're lost in reverie about the past, or we're analyzing the present, or we're doing something to it, comparing it with some other situation. And meditation practice, uh, to, for me to use the word intimacy, is just a term that I like, you may not, and you can throw it away. Uh, mindfulness, real mindfulness, is intimate contact with what you're mindful of. Just doing normal meditation practice, more and more you're going to begin to see all the ways in which you are separated from reality. Even ourselves, we're separated from ourselves because we have so many notions about who we are. Our self-image, I have low self-esteem. If I do this, come to CIMC, maybe I'll get high self-esteem. But now they tell me they're not interested in any kind of esteem. I think I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> and so we have conclusions about ourselves which started very early in life. We looked into some adult's eyes and they looked into our eyes and they told you, aren't you a cute, sweet little thing? Or, doesn't look too healthy to me. Or, oh, what a, he's uh, got a good, healthy, uh, got a, for me it was my feet. You know, so like, <laughs> my feet were just much longer. You know, they belonged for a six foot four person. And it started at home, but then when I went to get shoes, the shoe, person in the shoe store would say, he's got a, a real healthy foot on him, God bless him. <laughs> you know, he's like, you know, this is like, he's got the foot of a six-footer. I was about four foot eight. <laughs> and so I soon learned to, oh, you know, my feet are wrong. They're too, they're too long for my height. Well, that's relatively trivial. Even I could work my way out of that one. <laughs> but people look into our eyes and they convey something, whether we're worthwhile or not, whether we're handsome or pretty or intelligent or, uh, you know, we all, and it starts very, very early and it keeps going. And so we have a lot of notions and baggage about who we are, including notions about aging. We'll limit it to that for the evening. So intimacy with yourself is to see that that's separating you from your experience. It's an idea. Now, to be intimate with the idea is possible, but that would mean you would really hear the mind just thinking. You would really hear what a thought really is. It's just a thought. It's blah, blah, blah. And sometimes when the mind is quiet, you can really hear it for exactly for what it is. And when you do, it doesn't have the power anymore. When you don't, we believe whatever the mind tells us. There's a bumper sticker that, the bumper stickers are going up. They're going up in caliber. It used to be and it's related to what I'm saying. I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be fishing, I'd rather be playing tennis, have you noticed? Everyone would rather be somewhere else. Okay. Well, if you'd rather be somewhere else, you're not intimate with driving, that's for sure. Okay. I saw one parked on our street here which said, don't believe everything that the mind thinks. I said, wow, far out. <laughs> no, it said, don't believe anything that the mind thinks. Or that understands thinking is necessary, it's a level of reality, but it's about life. It's always about something, and it's necessary. Okay. Um, we use intimacy a lot in terms of our partners. We would love to have an intimate relationship. 
I think all the soap operas are based on it. There'd be no programs from about two o'clock on if that weren't a craving that we all had. And also that it doesn't work and then we try again and there's always hope. Uh, how are we going to be intimate with someone else if we're not intimate with ourselves? And they're not intimate with themselves either. So it's two people that don't know each other groping in the dark to get really close. Now, we do sometimes in the act of making love and that's why so much has been loaded onto sex. Sometimes by the sheer power of that energy, the mind stops and it just, mm, you know what I mean. And in those moments, we're very alive and we're not carrying any of our baggage. How wonderful, we love it. Is it possible to, uh, is that the only way you can get there? Uh, does it have to be so dramatic and, and uh, driven? Is it possible that this uh, is something that's more within our reach as just a very ordinary uh, quality of, of life itself? When we live with someone, we're married to, with someone for a number of years, or we're partners for a long time, or we have parents and you know, all the relationships that we have, not only do we build up pictures of ourselves, but we pick, build up pictures of the other person. And so, once again, if you have a picture of someone, try it out. You know, if you know, you're living with someone and have for a while, if you look carefully, you'll see that you have a lot of assumptions about them. They're very subtle. It's not like you're walking around intentionally manufacturing assumptions, but you see, oh yeah, oh, oh Larry, he's going to, you know, whatever, or whoever it is for you. And as you begin to see that, and that falls away, you can see that there's a person there, and they're just who they are. Uh, the relationship becomes much more fresh if you can do that. Otherwise, the longer you're with someone, you know, it's like an old Chekhov play where the old couple knows every move that each one is going to make. I forgot which play it is. They just sit around knowing exactly what's coming next. There you go. There goes the old fool into the bathroom again. There she goes, going <laughs> to bake another loaf of bread, you know. Uh, well, we do have to do things over and over and over and over again. But that isn't what kills life. It's the fact that we're, we do it un, uh, unconsciously. We're, we're caught. So this is what I mean by intimacy. Now, I've said this, setting the ground for the main subject, which is aging, sickness, and death, uh, because those are three of the most intimate aspects of life. They are absolutely crucial. Who doesn't get concerned about their aging? Is there anyone on this planet who hasn't, at some point, have to deal with the fact that they're aging and sickness? And especially sometimes if the aging is on the way to sickness which is on the way to death. And that happens, as we know, it's not a novelty. So here are three highly charged areas of life, aging, sickness, death. Now, the practice of insight meditation is to be intimate with everything, with all things. So that's a general teaching. It means when you eat, a, eat something, do you taste it? When you listen to music, do you hear it? When you hug someone, uh, do you know you're there, or, are you, or would you rather be golfing? So it's a general teaching, but now what I'd like to do is to bring it to the particular of aging, sickness, and death, and here you have a tension uh, that's quite remarkable, because here are these three events which couldn't be closer to us. They're, it's in our face, and also it's what we push furthest away. And so the challenge of practice is the same old practice, 
watch it, be mindful of it with equanimity and so forth. But this is an area that we are very, very practiced at avoiding. Now again, uh, the reason I'm constantly linking our work with aging, sickness, and death with our general practice, because I hope at least at the end of all these weeks, what you can see is that the best thing you can do if you have concerns about aging gracefully and uh, how to uh, not be overwhelmed by sickness and also finally how to die an easy death, dignified death, is to do the ordinary practice. You just It doesn't have to be so special. It's the same practice. I think that will become clearer. So we're learning how to be intimate with just the ordinariness, which we have a hard enough time with anyway. Even if it's just Let's say, uh, let me give you a very concise sense of practice that, again, is very helpful for me. The hardest thing to learn is not to sit on your bun for hours on end, or even to go away for months to retreats, as valuable as invaluable, as precious as that is. And I do lots of it. I did more of it. I, whenever I get the opportunity to do it, I do it and I love it. It's tremendously valuable. But what's even harder to learn is how to be with what is. That is, how to be with the content of this moment, your moment, exactly the way it is. That's a very hard s skill to learn, because if you have tried to do it, and I know many of you in this room, most know what I'm talking about, the mind, it's again, I'd rather be golfing. It's very, very difficult uh, to learn the art of allowing what's there to be there, so that you can intimately experience it exactly as it is. It takes courage, it takes the willingness to be naked in the face of your experience. And experiences like loneliness, anger, fear, boredom, restlessness, etc., all those. We're not even talking about aging, sickness, and death. And so if you've tried to do this practice, see if what I'm saying is accurate, uh, the tendency of the mind is not to be with what is, but to be with what should be, what used to be, what might be. And the, the, the thrust of the practice is how to be with what is the fact of this moment. The fact of this moment. And yet our minds have so much practice and tremendous incentive, apparently, to not be in this moment. We don't want to be in this moment. It's somehow never enough, never good enough. Some other moment will be better. Okay. And a tremendous amount of energy, again, please test this with your own life, an enormous amount of energy is squandered trying to avoid our experience through escapes, through denial, through postponement, through hesitation, through coping, through putting up with, through explanations, through analysis. I don't mean psychoanalysis, I mean analytic, although it could include that, depending on how you use it. All of them fall short of the simple, immediate, intimate experience of just what's happening right now. And if you think of all the energy we use to, in a sense, uh, beat around the bush, to be indirect, uh, in five years I'll be ready to take that one on. You know what I'm getting at. Aren't we experts at, like coping is a big word. Dharma practice goes well beyond coping. If that's all that we're learning here is how to cope, we already know how to do that. Putting up with, we're tremendous masters at that. Not living our understanding, betraying ourselves, we're very good at that. We know exactly what to do. We don't do it. 
Why? Well, I'm afraid. I would have to be alone if I did what I knew was right. I'd lose my job, I'd lose my friend, I'd lose this. So I think I, I'd, rather, I'd rather stay and keep thinking about how I should leave for the next five or ten years than face the fear of leaving. Okay, now, if, you've, if you're with me so far, maybe I'm just talking about myself, if you're with me so far, what if, let's just play a game, what if all of the energy that we squander in evasion of one sort or another, in escapes of one sort or another, and we're, a brilliant, we're brilliant Houdinis, what if instead of trying to escape all the time, because, and, and it doesn't work, if it did we wouldn't be here, what if we took all of that energy, gathered it together, and directed it at that which we seem to be afraid to look at? There's tremendous, attention becomes like a flame. You have tremendous attention, even without uh, formal samadhi practices and sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. All of that is helpful, as you know. But if you could just stop wasting so much energy in trying to get away from the facts of life and instead bring that energy together and direct it at exactly what's happening, can you see what a, an immense resource you have at your disposal? To help you, to see clearly into your own life. To me, that's what the job of, that's what practices and my own job for myself, first and foremost, and then also with you at your own pace. Some people just have to go two steps forward, ten steps backward, a hundred steps forward, a thousand steps backward. Fine. I don't think any of us here want to put a little bit. We have to push to make it interesting, but we're not trying to overwhelm you. It's more understanding that is what I have faith in when you begin to see uh, the futility of avoidance, that it doesn't work. Why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep doing something that doesn't work? Um, if your house is burning, you run out to save your life. You don't need a whole workshop and, you know, come here and get encouragement. You run out. Uh, I think some of this is just as obvious. Why don't we? Why don't we stop it and, and uh, alter our life somehow? It requires learning how to live, and I would say that's the essence of practice. But in order to do that, you have, it takes tremendous humility, because you have to admit that you don't know how to live. And that's very hard for so-called adults to do. Harder for guys than for women, I think. Because we've been brought up to be know-it-alls. You know, we're just always correct. If you're from Russian Jewish culture, you're always correct. <laughs> I myself have never been wrong in my entire life. My father before me, he never made... It's amazing what a lineage I come from. Okay, so it takes quite a bit of work to understand, you know, I really don't know how to live. Now, a brief version. I think it's fine to use one's biography if it has a Dharma purpose. I'm not interested in using it here otherwise. I have uh, intimate circles to, to speak this way. The high point of my own life, from the point of view of resume, you know, you know what a resume is? I had a great resume. Fantastic. I was teaching at a, a major university in this town. Uh, I was healthy. I had more money than I had ever had in my life. I had extra money for the first time in my life. I had published a lot. Um, women were interested in me because I was at this major university and was not married yet and uh, had these publications. And I started to be able to buy nice clothes for myself. 
And if you looked at my resume, it listed all kinds of publications, a book and many journal articles, and I've been to really good schools, and now I was a professor at a really good school. You know which one I was playing. I don't want to give him a free commercial, though. Um, and so my resume was fantastic, and my life, forget about it. Okay, so the gap between the actual experience of my life and my resume was like Grand Canyon. Okay, uh, and that led to uh, severe unhappiness and uh, a sense of urgency that uh, this, there's something wrong here because I've done what I'm supposed to do and I've gotten it. And I, I spent a lot of time blaming this school until I saw it's not about the school. It's about me. I really don't know how to be happy. I don't know how to really relate to a woman in an intimate way yet. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. It was quite humiliating. But uh, it led to good things. It led to being open to, to uh, avenues of understanding that, had, that would have been closed otherwise. Okay. What does this all have to do with our subject? Now let's get to it. Old age, aging. Are you intimate with the fact you're all doing it, you know? Let me, uh, I uh, took this out of a magazine a couple of days ago. It's an advertisement in a magazine and it says, aging is here to stay. <laughs> Become part of it. Uh, sign up for a master's degree in gerontology and long-term care management, the Naropa Institute, Boulder, Colorado. Sign me up. Oh, I already did that one. Okay. Got the t-shirt in there. Um, so all of us are aging. And I think I don't have to go into a huge amount of detail as to uh, the fact that it's a rare person who knows how to age. It's very hard to do. So we have all these different games we play with aging, like not being able to talk about our, how old we are, uh, incredible sensitivity, uh, fear and worry, because at some level we know where this is all heading. But now, from the time of the Buddha, one of the reflections that the Buddha had everyone, he encouraged everyone to reflect on every day. This was both monks, nuns, and lay people. I am subject to aging. Aging is unavoidable. I am subject to aging. Aging is unavoidable. And to turn that thought over in your mind, it's a skillful use of thought. Hmm. And it brings something up sometimes, maybe not at first. But if you do it from time to time, especially if your mind is calm, sometimes what it brings up is, well, what it brings up, but it could be fear. It could be apprehension. It could be anxiety. Uh, and the practice is when you take on a reflection like that, why would one do that? Why would you invite trouble? Bad enough we're aging. Why do we have to rub it in? Because we, if we do have these sleeping dormant, hidden in us, apprehensions and anxieties. Uh, Dharma practice is not about avoidance, so we're actually looking for trouble. So a reflection like that is an invitation, if there's any fear or apprehension for it to come up, for you to reflect on it 
for you to bring awareness and insight into the fear so that little by little, and sometimes not little by little, you can chip away at it and even take the power out of it so that you don't have so much fear about aging. So that you can understand that aging is a natural process. Anyone who's ever lived has gone through it. I can't, we can't even count how many people have already been born and done this. You know, they all went through the whole thing and died. You know, everyone does the same. Okay, um, to start to come to terms with that. So that's one kind of approach that the Buddha used. Uh, and one reason for it was to flush out any kind of anxiety. Another reason for it was to help people deal, deal with the, the arrogance of youth, the pride of youth. When we're young, uh, any of the things I'm talking about doesn't occur to us. I mean, I'm talking about it now, but if you had caught me, let's say, when I was in my 20s or so, you know, I would have been bored to death with a rap like this. I would have been the first one out of this room. Uh, and it's as if you're forever. And you have, you know, you can run and jump and you don't need sleep and you can miss your meals and, you know, you know what we can all do, uh, you know, if you're reasonably healthy. And there's a, a tendency to assume that that's forever. Uh, there's a tendency to perhaps be condescending to those who are older, like, hey, pop, you know, whatever. Uh, moreover, because of that pride, uh, there's a tendency for the mind to spin out mind states and actions that are unproductive, that are unskillful. The Buddhist way of looking at things. That is, things having to do with greed and aggression. When we're in that state of uh, living forever, we sometimes do things. You know how many stupid things are done in youth. What is that saying? It's wasted on the young? I think it's true, but it's going to keep being like that. The young folks are the ones who have youth. That's what it's about. Okay. Now, I don't know how many people who are young can hear this and understand. It's not to then crush your childhood or crush... It's to put it in balance and understand that this is a time in life when you have lots of energy and it's time to have problems and to explore and so forth, but to understand that it won't be with you forever. And that those people who are older and who kind of walk slowly and who uh, don't get out of the way in time, uh, that's you. That's you just in the future. And you uh, better understand that because your life will be a lot better if you understand that we're all comrades in this. We're all in this together. Um, so one way to okay. um, one way to practice with uh, with aging is to take it on as a as a reflection from time to time. You can do it during a sitting. Just turn it over in your mind if it if it arouses a certain emotion. Uh, then practice with that emotion, just the way you would as if it came up naturally. But here, it's prompted. We're kind of... It's like metta. Metta is a prompted practice. There's also an unprompted metta. There's a loving-kindness that comes spontaneously from the heart. It's not prompted. It's there, and it just pours out. We all know that, too. So this is a practice which is cultivated. Uh, you can also learn about aging. Uh, if you recall, I can't review all the three weeks that went before this, uh, this teaching is based on the, uh, the four messengers that the Buddha faced. Remember, the Buddha was very, very shielded. His father didn't want him to become a spiritual person. 
He wanted him to become a king, and he, he knew that if he saw suffering of any kind, that, that would, he was a very sensitive person, it would make him disinterested in being a king and incline him in a very different direction. And so he protected him from aging, sickness, and death. But then the Buddha, as the story goes, of course, somehow got out of the palace and did see an old person and inquired, will this happen to me? And then his trusty charioteer said, yes, no one's exempt from this. And so that was, uh, that affected him. So uh, we don't need the Buddha. The, the messengers are all over the place. There are people at different ages all over the place. Or you look at a film and you see an actor as uh, I like films, and I, you see some of the actors, uh, you see them when they were much younger, how they were, and that this is the way they are now, and they once were like that, and you can, uh, it's all on celluloid, you can kind of do a study of it, and wherever you go, there are reminders of it. But of course now, let's get closer. And I think, I'd like to give you some examples, I think I'll just limit it to one tonight, and then we'll uh, see what's on your mind, and we'll go into it more deeply next time. The challenge, of course, goes up when we're being asked to be intimate with our own aging. It's one thing to see someone else age, and you feel compassion for them, and maybe even reflect, yes, that's going to happen to me, and then you feel a quivering of the heart. But it's another thing when it's unprompted, and suddenly life uh, jolts you into seeing that you are aging, and that this is a process that is a, just goes. There's no stopping it. It's just running. It's running out. It's like time. It just keeps going. There's no no stopping. It has nothing to do with your opinion. So let me. Uh, I'll use myself again. Being such a devoted student of the Dharma, I'll sacrifice myself, my own self-respect. This is most humiliating. No, a number of you have heard it. Apparently, I enjoy this humiliation enough to repeat it over. <laughs> to understand it, you have to understand background that, uh, and this gets back to Vimala's teaching, Vimala Thakkar's teaching, that I have both been practicing death awareness for a fair number of years, and I more recently have had uh, actual deaths, which is very different. There's really... Uh, quite a difference between when someone you love dies and then, uh, you know, when you intentionally reflect on it or even on your own. It's not that this is not useful, it is, but it's different than uh, a real death. But to understand this little story, it's very short, you have to understand that in addition to being, uh, taking up this concern, which has interested me since childhood, I've always been intrigued by elderly people, I don't know why. I'm also a health faddist. I probably single-handedly support bread and circus. Okay. So I do yoga and I walk and I uh, eat healthy foods and organic if possible and vegetarian. You know, I'm a stereotype. I mean, just like perfect. I could be a Saturday Night Live or you know the the film The Road to Wellness. Anyone see that? It's about me. It's quite hilarious about a, a health spa. Uh, they're not inconsistent for me, although sometimes. Uh, when I lose my balance, I'm overwhelmingly concerned with the health part, and I lose touch with the fact that, uh, as one bumper sticker put it, uh, eat vegetables, drink clean water, breathe fresh air, and die anyway. 
Okay. I know that. That's my practice. Uh, and when I'm right, uh, I'm like that old uh, Hindu sage who is taking care of life, knowing full well that at some point uh, I will die. But I'm alive now, and I care for this body uh, as best I can, and um, I've been doing it for a while. Okay, so you need to know that. I'm coming back from the dentist in Brookline, which is where all the dentists live. <laughs> for some reason, only dentists live in Brookline. Dentists and Russians. That's all I meet when I go there. <laughs> okay. And some are Russian dentists. <laughs> anyway. So, I had a, you know, a job done on me. I don't remember what it was. And I get on the T, which is going from Coolidge Corner to Harvard Square, uh, Central Square. And I get on, and all the seats are taken, and I'm holding on to the, the whatever it's called, pipe. And uh, suddenly this young woman, about 21, 22, looks up at me, smiles. And, all right, I smile back, and she gets up and gives me her seat. So I think, how sweet, what a nice person. I think, well, she's getting off at the next stop, of course. You know. So I sit down, I'm happy to have the seat, and we get to the next stop, she doesn't get off. Well, she'll probably get off the next one. She's not getting off, <laughs> you know. So finally, it took a while to get through uh, this thick skull that she perceives me as a senior citizen, or so you know that somebody who needs a seat, and that she's young and perky, she doesn't need the reflection, apparently she understands age. <laughs> and uh, she's just a good-hearted person, and like, here, Pop, you know, here's a seat. And my mind flooded out, just flooded out. And I can't, you know, it was so excitable. So many things happened. I can only give you uh, the memories of some of the flashes that went through it. First of all, uh, there must be something wrong here. It was just, I didn't realize that I had pride, or so much pride, in being, uh, you, you look kind of, oh, you're 65 I, uh, at the time. I said, you don't look a day over 50. Oh, you really think so? <laughs> you know. I should hope so, after all that yoga and organic food. You know, <laughs> the poor guy doesn't do anything else, you know what I mean? Like, so at least he looks a little younger. Okay. Uh, so the, first of all, it was a jolt, and I wasn't sure what the jolt was, and the mind started to... Uh, essentially what it was was, I'm the guy who gives other people seats, which I'm in the habit of doing. I was brought up to be a gentleman, and I like to do it. And suddenly, somebody who's younger than me is giving me a seat, and I knew what was in her mind. It was obvious. And she was being kind to me, which means that I'm not exactly who I thought I was. My image of myself, which I didn't even know I had, was not exactly the image she had of me, which was of... And then the mind started to flood out. Hey, Gramps, uh, have a seat, old-timer. You know, like, uh, uh, your feet hurting you? Take a load off your feet. Sit, can I help you with that package? You know, hey, Pop, you know, like, where is this all leading? And the mind got hysterical, you know. Uh, then it started to defend itself. It's sort of like, oh, uh, the reason she thought I'm, I'm older is because I've just come from the dentist, you know, and I look, I must look terrible, you know. Uh, no, it was just a cleaning, you know. <laughs> uh, and this went on. You know, just sort of, uh, I had a hard time. Ex Finally, I realized I am 65 years old, and I do have gray hair, and I look my age. 
or I'm in that bowl, I'm in that range, and here's a nice person who gave me a seat, get used to it. <laughs> because it's not going in the other direction, it's going in this direction. And it's not towards Central Square, you know, it's towards, you know, that final square in the, uh, in the, in the sky. Okay. Uh, and I sat and I looked at it and it was, uh, the humiliation came when I didn't realize that I had an image of the kind of a, a 65-year-old but bouncy and youthful and sportsy and jaunty, you know, sort of that kind of person. Uh, instead, I'm, to this person, I was the kind of person who needed some help, you know, sit down, take a load off your feet. And uh, it shook me up. And I, I did have a good laugh at my own expense. And that was the beginnings of uh, looking carefully at it. Now, how to be intimate with that whole process of aging uh, means, I'll just leave you all with this, because this is what the, and we'll continue next time. Living ages the body. That's just a scientific fact. Does anyone disagree with that? Living seems to age the body. But the mind has a life of its own. And you can be 900 years old and the mind is still... Uh, my mother, uh, when she was in, uh, pushing 90, there were certain areas that was the same vanity I remember when she was in her 20s or 30s. You know, it doesn't seem to go away. And so the self-image that the mind has of itself isn't necessarily coordinated with this fact, F-A-C-T, that living ages the body. If you're going to be here, it happens to everything that's here. Everything. Wherever you look, it's a law. And yet the mind kind of can create an autonomous reality, all its own, and believe in it. If it makes up a nice one, it feels happy. But then the great teacher, the greatest master of all, is life. It, it always, if you're full of BS, life comes crashing in at some point. It does. And if you're willing to learn, that's the problem. The teachings are all laid out for us. There are no students. The curriculum is there, and no one wants to sign up for the course. So what Vipassana is, is a tricky way, but the name of the center should really be Cambridge Death Awareness Center. But instead we call it Cambridge Inside Matter. It sounds safer, you can wander in here. Okay, why don't we uh, call it an evening? We'll continue with aging next time. Uh, for those of you who uh, want to leave, this is a good time. Uh, and uh, let's take just a few minutes. Not, not, it's not a, a long break, really. Um, but let me say this. If you don't want to be rude, you know you only have like five or ten minutes you'd like to stay, but then you don't want to get up in the middle. I don't really care. It's okay. So if you can stay a little while, uh, it's not rude to get up and leave when you want to. But for those of you who uh, want to leave right now, it would be a good time to take a break. Sir, that would be good for me. Okay, what's on your mind? Anything? Any? Please.
Yeah. You've already answered the question. Your, your question has the answer in it. He goes, she's not a practitioner. Uh, so the, the only thing that you can offer her is you. And the degree to which the practice helps you be with her in certain ways rather than other ways can be helpful for her. But uh, I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, I was with my mother, she was dying uh, on the way. And uh, one time I was holding her hand and, you know, she's 90, was, she's gone now, she's dead. And um, I was giving her, I thought, a beautiful Dharma rap about impermanence and letting go. My mother is not a meditator, you have to understand that. Uh, and I was holding her hand and every time I would mention, uh, I would say things like, Mom, your body has served you well for all these years and now it's, it's worn out. Uh, don't fight and struggle. She was working so hard to stay alive. It was exhausting just to watch it. Um, there's nothing to fear, just let go. Every time I used the word let go, her hand would get tighter and tighter. Uh, at one point, I had to stop using that just for my own survival. And, uh, and so I, and uh, that's because I was not tuned in enough. Like, what am I doing giving her this kind of teaching? Although I tried. Uh, it says so in the book that it would be a good idea. It didn't work. Then I shifted to metta, not using the word M-E-T-T-A, but just reminding her what a loving person she is, uh, how, how many people love her, what a good life, what a good person she's been, and how my sister and I love her, and we were there with her. And, uh, and suddenly her hand, and she melted and smiled. And that was because I was uh, clear enough to do what was right for her. Now, you want, see, I can't tell you a particular, but if you're full of anxiety, apprehension, all kinds of things, the chances of you being sensitive to what your sister needs are going to be less. Whereas, I mean, you, you can't stop yourself from having the anxiety and the apprehension and, in a way, the uh, sorrow even before it's happened. Uh, but if you're conscious of it and you're taking care of it, then there can be a bit more peace in you, which is your gift to her. You see? Yeah. 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 Please. Yeah, but you see, yeah, it could and it couldn't. Um, for example, if I say to you, oh, it was his karma, I wouldn't say that. Because to, to me, is first of all, it's a colossal uh, uh, conceit on my part to say a thing like that. It's, and it's not the way karma is meant, sort of like he's being, he did something bad in a past lifetime and now he's got to be run over to make, uh, it's like God punishes. I don't think it's in that. The lawfulness I'm talking about is cause and effect. Okay. Uh, so I would now, uh, when people try to make sense, if if there's a teaching that can help, it depends on the person again. If the person has a deep commitment to practice, it's one thing. If they don't, it's another. Let, let me give you an example. Um, suicide. <laughs> 
is a very common one, uh, especially if it's a young person. And this is a case that I know well personally. Intelligent, has everything to live for, uh, uh, etc. Loved by everyone around her, uh, and nonetheless takes her life. The mind is boggled. You know, like how could this happen? Why could this person? You know, what did we do wrong? What? And then starts groping for, and then there are Christian explanations, and Jewish explanations, and Buddhist, and uh, karma, and um, uh, then there's the teaching of rebirth, which can be reassuring. Okay, uh, she's not gone, she's just moving on, she'll be learning her lessons. Oh, that makes me feel better. For some people, that's enough. But for other people, it doesn't work. Because when you look closely, you realize, I really don't know. No. uh, I really don't know. And this don't know is a, is a kind of intelligence because you don't know. Okay. Now, if you, Buddhist teachings, there are libraries full of them, and some of them can be comforting, and for some people it is appropriate to do it because they're not going to, uh, it'll help them. And if it, I'm pragmatic with these things, like with my mother, and if it helps her, this person, great. But for other people, it, it will be like a band aid, and then they're still going to be left with their pain. And then the practice, can help that person work with their pain. You can't bring uh, this person's husband back. And why it happened, I think at a certain point the mind will get exhausted because it realizes it can't figure it out. You know, just, uh, look, I, if you ever walk around the country, I, I know when I'm at IMS and I take the walks around the loop, it's not unusual, there'll be a dead squirrel. You know, it's sort of like the coincidence. You know, a squirrel runs out on the wor- road and a car happens to be coming at that point. And I realized, wow, that's a little bit like the way we are, you know, sort of like you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, squashed. And there is room in common for that, too. It's not all um, exactly meticulously worked out in a kind of uh, punishment-reward system, not in Buddhism at any rate. So uh, I don't know your friend. Is she a practitioner? A little bit, not much, but she's really sort of See, what I know is just so unsentimental that it's, uh, I, I don't want to, I hope it isn't taken in, in, as an insult. It's sort of, I'm just going to follow this tr- train. Let's say uh, I'm just putting myself in her, her shoes. The pain, of course, must be immense. Okay. The practice would help this person work with the pain, not indirectly, but directly. Okay. Which means, at a certain point, is to help the grieving process to really be effective, meaning to really grieve. That means to really be intimate with the pain, to use that metaphor here. Uh, Let's say I would realize that finally I don't know. I don't know why uh, my husband walked out on the road and was run over. Uh, But what I can learn from it is that life is uncertain. It's very tenuous. All of us are fragile. If it's not by a car, you know, there are just so many ways to die. We hear them and see them on the media all the time. Uh, and what I learned from it is you know, that life is uncertain, which might seem like a platitude and a truism, but if you could re- it's a very powerful one. It has been for me. When you reflect on life is uncertain, we literally, it's a derivative of the law of change, of impermanence, that this law is unfolding and we don't own life in this sense. Okay, so for me, uh, some reflection on understanding that all of us are subject 
to this uncertainty, to the law of uncertainty, which is unrelenting. You know, the small ways, the weather says it's going to be sunny and you plan a picnic and it rains. You know, or you go to have a good time and go to a great restaurant and you get food poisoning. Or, you know, there are just all kinds of expectations. You know, we have a little expectations equals suffering. It's a mathematical formula in Dharma circles. Uh, the expectation would be that this, this man would live his full life out and be a, a husband and a father. And uh, that's the thing. These things never happen to us. They happen to other people in the news until sometimes we wind up being the one it's happened to. Uh, so I don't think what I know can be so helpful. Um, karma could be useful, but it's, I've seen it misused. You know, where the person will uh, take it to beat up on themselves or beat up on, maybe we all as a family have done something that's just awful and now, and there are books that sometimes give even detail, you know, like you crush a, intentionally crush a mosquito and you're born as an ant or, you know, I don't believe, I feel that's folklore, you know, I, I just really do. Uh, and I don't, I don't have put much stock in it. I think uh, the law of karma to me is not ridiculous, that the law of cause and effect seems, even on, the, on our own life, it seems you can verify it. You can see that there's some cause and effect. But here, you know, this driver, something was going on with him and, you know, that came together for some reason. And any deeper meaning of it, that, which is what you're asking for, you know, you know him the, the same way I do. And I don't, uh, I think that what might happen. See, that's what I mean. A lot of the things I'm talking about down here, I don't know if they're helpful if you don't have a practice. Because it, let's say it's someone who has a practice, then I, you, you would have to cycle through all the what-ifs and whys. I don't think there's any way to escape that. I've seen that with suicide. The mind endlessly tries to figure out why did this happen. And at a certain point, it becomes exhausted. Because none of the, for most people, for many people, uh, they're not satisfactory. And what you're left with is, I really don't know. Not only don't I know, but I'm not going to know. Not really. And some psychic can give you, or a medium can give you a, an answer. It makes you feel better. And then maybe three or four days later, it falls apart, and you realize. And so, after the mind kind of gets exhausted making up stories to help it, it sort of um, comfort itself, uh, then I think when the comforting phase falls away, you're left with the starkness of the event. Uh, I see this event as quite comparable to the suicide of a young person. Uh, and then uh, the practice would be, rather than seeking ways of uh, explaining it away or uh, putting some salve on the heart with explanations, is to look at the wound itself and alert it to become intimate. Now. How can a person do that unless they've had some training? I, don't th I think the mind won't be able to do it. It's just fanciful. Do, do you see what I'm trying to say? Um, sometimes, maybe, if a person is so motivated and they hear the instructions, I wouldn't rule this out, because what's being asked is intimacy with sorrow would mean to throw away all the stories. And then there's one story that's the hardest to throw away, which is self-pity. You know, why, it's really not about her husband, it's about her. Why did this happen to me? And if someone were to bring that up, that would sound coarse or vulgar or, in, uh, you know, just uh, insensitive, unkind. 
I've seen this with uh, survivors from the Holocaust. It's very tricky ground. It's very hard to talk about it. the practice would be of help, uh, and I, and I uh, other I don't if not knowing your friend, I don't know any anything else to say. But you know her, and do you know these teachings? Are there are there anything in these teachings that? Okay, I mean, see, what's let's say the law of uncertainty that is that we know, and the fact that death comes unannounced at any time. No one knows. Everyone knows that they're going, okay, we're getting, maybe this will help. Because these reflections are used and they can be useful even without strong concentration. Uh, Everyone must die. This is a reflection that's used in Buddhist teaching. Um, But uh, death is certain. But the time and the occasion of death is uncertain. So everyone's subject to that same event that this man was. And it's, that's what I mean by shining the light of death on life. If after the period of tremendous grieving or, or remorse, uh, of groping for verbal explanations and theories and anything really, when that wears, if it wears itself down as it may, then uh, just to reflect that all of us are subject to this, that it's no one knows when we're gonna, when our time will come up. No one. This was when his time was. We don't know why, but we know, it's a fact. And my time will come, and even my child's time will come. In other words, the entire planet, no one gets out of this alive. It could prompt someone, now it's dangerous, because it could push someone into cynicism, skepticism, or total despair. And so the timing is very important, it's not for everyone. If the person's strong, and at a certain point in their life, uh, to actually take the bitter medicine, rather than sugarcoating it. Uh, But that would take tremendous skill on your part, as a friend to know what is appropriate to suggest, and because then I can help the person understand that this is a human existential problem. It's not just my problem and my husband and my child's problem. We're all subject to this strange state of events. We're born and we love to be here and it's going to be taken away from us. There's something, no matter how much Buddhism and meditation, something poignant about that. We're not animals. We know it's going to happen to us. You know, we know it, and it's happening to everyone, but they maybe don't know it the way we do. Uh, so that that reflection on uncertainty can um, enhance the value of the life, that is, she's alive and her child is alive. And at a certain point, maybe that can make life even more precious, but not in a frantic way, but in a, a refined, subtle way to, uh, to really uh, enhance her ability to love her child, to, uh, to love herself, and to live well, do you see what I'm getting at? You're going to have to be creative and very sensitive. Uh, I have, at times with people, one wrong word and I've offended the person not intending to at all. Um, People are what? Who was being revived? I, was. I see. I had a strange I see. So, um, for me, I have now most of the things been removed, but the people are still there and just become active in the moment. So, 
Well, after we finish aging, we're going to get to illness. Yeah, but I can give you a, a preview of it because, uh, in a way, I'm going to be saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, you have some apprehension, right? You know, as to what is in store for you. Is it, it's not all out? Will this lead to a, a, this? You've had probably had quite a, a fright from the event, uh, and so the the practice, in other words, do everything you can physically from the from a medical healing point of view, of course. But let's say you do all of that. You have a wonderful doctors and wonderful... You're doing everything that you know to try to heal this condition. Period. And then there's bound to be something left off in parenthesis. Uh, but will this, be, will this occur again? Will I be subject to this again? And, what, will it be, and then all the things you know better than I, what the mind can make up. Intimacy of practice would be Intimacy with you see the mind will make up what that future will be. It isn't what the future is going to be. You don't know what's going to happen. You really don't. But the mind uh, has a powerful tendency to invent the future. And in this case, what we're talking about is a future that's not such a happy ending, and which will produce anxiety and a body that's uh, full of powerful, painful sensations and disabling thoughts and so forth. So the practice would be. Wisdom would be discernment to understand uh, just the way things actually are right now and to be able to tell the difference between uh, stories that the mind makes up about what is going to happen and the actuality of what actually is in this moment, which is you seem all right, you sound coherent to me, you know, etc., etc. Do you see what I'm getting at? And now to do that, that takes a steady mind, and that's why I keep coming back up, you know, uh, I, I feel this is best for people who are doing this practice, and a sensitive mind that can begin to discern. And there's a, uh, our practice, the wisdom part of our practice is called sati panya, mindfulness with discernment. And so uh, when, let's say, I'm not even going to say if, I'm going to say when, because probably it does come up for you, right? Yeah. Um, when that comes up is for you to practice with it just as you would with anything else that comes up. Using the breathing, calming the mind to become breath, or having the breath accompany you as you examine what it brings up in the body, which might, if there's fear, there's bound to be some sensations in the body that are unpleasant. Uh, to be able to tell the difference between notions that the mind makes up, futuristic scenarios, to hear it as just that. It's not a fact, it's just what the, and as you see it and see its impermanent nature, see it arise, operate, fall away, and then you're back with, you seem fine to me, it's a nice warm building, there are kind people here, you can go, you see what I, so that now, now, in other words, it's, it's all designed to help you stay with now, at some point we'll all be in your boat, I mean we're all in your boat right now, we all, but it's easier to miss that until life gives you a jolt, that's what I was talking about. Uh, now you have a choice. You can, when life has done this, you know, it's happened to you, it can turn you into a very frightened, timid, uh, hysterical, uh, morbid, depressed, anxious person, or you can use it to grow spiritually, it, it, to mature, and everyone in your life will benefit from it. You see the, you were given a glimpse of death, and it can help you see how precious we all are to each other. And so, 
you, your, your view probably has already happened to you. Yeah. So I vote, take that road. The event happened, that's a fact. And now it's a question of what you do with it. We'll get much more detail when we get to the illness part. But that's the basic. Yeah. Too bad we, all of us, need such drama. Um, of course, what all real Dharma practice is saying is that as, as there's some depth in practice, what happens is that the experience of aliveness uh, is something that is attainable without a crisis. Because we're just as, a, uh, the aliveness, we're not fully alive. And anything that helps us be fully alive is what the Dharma now. Here, the fear of aging, sickness, and death, or when it strikes us, that can arouse the motivation to practice. But another thing that can arouse the motivation to practice is the fruit of practice. When you begin to see that uh, this practice, if it has for you, don't take it as a belief, has brought some real peace and joy to you, well then, for goodness sakes, do more of it. And if there are other activities in your life that bring suffering, why do you keep doing it? Drop them, like a hot potato. So, um, in depth of practice, it, it doesn't have to come from tragedy. It can be a joyful outcome of practice when you, you start feeling more alive. Let me link this with intimacy, because I'm trying to... The Chinese have a very simple and beautiful way of putting it. Um, they have one phrase called killing life. Uh, and it's, the, you know, an obvious one is you kill the body of a person, but that's not really what they mean. You kill life every time you're divided. You're, uh, you're in X, but you're thinking about Y. You're uh, with your child, but you'd rather be golfing. You know, so there's always some separation. You're not intimate with the moment. You're not fully alive. And then they have another phrase, giving life to life. And giving life to life is when you're, you're really there. You know, you're intimate with the experience of this moment. And it doesn't have to be big stuff. It can be the most ordinary thing. I, probably all of us have had those moments where suddenly uh, the beauty of even just peeling a potato or uh, it's just wonderful to be alive. And then it goes. And, but, so usually we need to be uh, clubbed on the head to wake up and then we get better. I saw it with my father. You know, when he had his colon removed, he was an angel. I mean, so appreciative and aware and all of his dogmatism gone. As his health returned, his ego returned. <laughs> he wouldn't mind my saying it. He's dead too. But I've told it to him while he was alive. And he was able to laugh at it. There was something else. I saw a hand flittering around somewhere. No? Okay, could we have a, a moment's silence, please? Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.